0: You've heard us talking about it for a while now. Teachhoops.com slash 816basketball. Check it out. Sign up for the free trial. Learn and grow as a coach. Again, teachhoops.com slash 816basketball. Join Coach Steve Collins over there and on his Facebook community to just get incredible coaching resources. Again, teachhoops.com slash 816basketball. And you know where I'm going with this next. Our boy, Billy Kegler and the Competitive Mindset Podcast, absolutely rolling. He's had incredible guests. Even Alan Stein has joined him on the Competitive Mindset Podcast. Catch it wherever you get your podcast and on social media at competitive pod and you can still support our boy takuma lets during his fight versus als if you go to our twitter page at 816 basketball there's a pin tweet there for all information takuma lets about his fight against als and you can donate to his gofundme there as well enjoy today's show Hello and welcome to the Greatest Games Podcast brought to you by 816 Basketball. I'm one of your hosts, Brian Rosefield, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chris de Blasio.
1: Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here as always on the Greatest Games Podcast. A chance for us to catch up with basketball coaches from around the country and have them tell us about their greatest games. As always, it can be their time as a head coach, an assistant coach, a college coach, a pro coach, just whatever game they consider to be their greatest. Or, Or, Brian, I messed up the intro a little bit, even if they were a former first-round NBA draft pick.
0: They could they could be that and they also could have already been on this show this is the most roundabout intro ever coach but already been on this show with maybe a previous guest that maybe called this guest on the phone I can't even make any sense of it but this is <laughs> we're just super excited to have one of the assistant coaches for the New Orleans pelicans coach Rex Walters welcomes to the greatest games podcast
2: well thank you guys it's nice to know I was a trifecta you know I covered all three bases. On that one. So hopefully with this one, I'll hit a home run and you guys will have a good podcast, but, but no promises, no promises.
1: For those who don't remember, and Brian, I don't remember the episode number because I didn't look it up beforehand, but we had coach Matt Daugherty on uh, former uh, North Carolina and Notre Dame head coach talking about his book Rebound. And I mentioned something I thought I knew about Rex and coach Doherty called him up live on our episode
2: when you get a call from matt Doherty you take it i'll say that like he was uh got to play for him for a year got to work for him for a year and he knows this already he's like a he's like a big brother to me i've got a big brother he's like another one he's just a little bit meaner than my actual big brother <laughs>
0: He really did come across as a hard-nosed coach. Episode 107 for us. And it it, I was inspired getting up. I was like, oh, geez, I want to make sure I don't upset Coach Matt Darty. So, yeah, he definitely came across that way for sure.
1: Well, Coach Walters, why don't you take us kind of through your basketball journey and how you got to where you are today a little bit.
0: Yeah, so I I grew up
2: in San Jose, California. My father worked in the service. Then he worked for Lockheed Missile Space. So, we we traveled a little bit. I was born in Omaha, Nebraska – Moved to Aurora, Colorado, and then Hawaii, and then finally settled in San Jose, California. Grew up there from about third grade on. I had a pretty good high school career. Uh, From there, I went to Northwestern for two years. Um, Wanted to play in the Midwest, wanted to play big-time basketball. After two years, decided to make a change. I was going to go back closer to home, but then Kansas came calling. They were interested. They were coming off some recruiting violations uh, from the previous regime, and I had a chance to go to Kansas, which I had watched that my entire sophomore year. I'd been watching them every big Monday where they were on. They were a great team with Kevin Pritchard, Jeff Geldner, Mark Randall, uh, Pekka Markkinen, um, you know, some great, great players. Got a chance to go there. That's where I did connect with Matt Doherty my senior year. He was one of the assistant coaches. Uh, then was drafted the first pick with uh, the 16th pick of the first round by the New Jersey Nets. Spent about two and a half years there. Was, let, uh, was traded to Philadelphia. Played in Philadelphia about two and a half years. Coaches figured out about two and a half years in the NBA, like, hey, we got to either cut this guy, trade this guy, something's got to (laughs) change. But uh, was released by the Sixers and then went to Miami where I played there for about two and a half years again. Uh, A total of seven years total. Went over in Spain, played in Spain for a a, a year, Uh, and then in between played in the ABA for Kevin Pritchard, who is now the GM of the Indiana Pacers played for him for a year in the ABA Kansas City Knights, went back to Spain, and after that uh, kind of hung him up and, and got into coaching. So uh, that's the brief playing background. Um, so go with that what you want.
0: Coach, I want to take you to, to the transfer, and I've heard you talk about the transfer. I know you've told the story about dick Batel uh and the and the the graphic that was posted as you're sitting there watching uh, a northwestern game and they label it as turncoat that you know Rex should have never left northwestern and that type of thing and so i know that was back in the 90s late 80s early 90s and so now when you look at the transfer portal that i have no idea how many kids are in the transfer portal that so many kids are leaving school just talk more about what it was like transferring then and what maybe just some thoughts on the transfer game right well, yeah now. For, i mean I,
2: first First of all when I left Northwestern it wasn't a big deal a lot of guys didn't leave it was a four-year deal I, I thought about leaving after my freshman year but I knew that I was going to play a lot as a as a sophomore I thought I could make a difference uh realized really quickly even though I scored a lot more points I wasn't making a lot of difference in the win-loss column and I wanted to play in the NCAA tournament that was a big dream of my life. like a lot of guys that have probably been in your show I didn't think about playing in the NBA I just want to be the best player I could be and see where it went but I wanted to play in the NCAA tournament so because was going to go home. I was going to go back to the Santa Clara, maybe San, University of San Francisco where I coached uh, and play closer to home. Because I figured if I'm not going to play in the tournament, at least I can play in front of my family, you know, and enjoy that. But uh, Kansas did come calling. My AAU coach uh, knew Bill Duffy, who knew Kevin Stallings, who was the assistant coach at Kansas. And so there was a connection there. He called, uh, and they were interested. They were coming off some recruiting violations uh, previously. I was able to to go out and visit. It wasn't a fancy visit. I went to Robinson gym uh, in Lawrence, Kansas, which is, you know, I didn't go out. I didn't drink. I didn't, you know, party. I wasn't that wasn't who I was, but I loved the idea of playing at Kansas. I loved the fact that, that, you know, guys like Kevin Pritchard, Jeff Geldner, uh, they moved the ball, they played fast. They shot the three like that to me really excited me. So I decided to go to Kansas um, and, and who knows, you know, I like to say I, I kind of started trends. So as a, as a player, I kind of got the trend going of transferring, you know, as a coach, I got criticized a lot because we had some transfers in San Francisco and now the thing's completely blown up and it's a, it's a free for all now. I mean, when I think about coaching in college again, and I love where I'm at, I love who I work for, but, but obviously at some point you want to be a head coach again, at some point but that's a scary thing when you talk about like guys are just basically on one year contracts. They're, they're, you know, assassins for hire to try to get to a higher level. I was, I felt like I was getting poached when I was at San Francisco back then. Now it's going to be rampant and every school is not just going to recruit high school kids, junior college kids, but they're actively going to know who's thinking about leaving And talking to AAU coaches, talking to high school coaches, talking to significant people in their lives. So when the time is right to make a move, you can't tell me that that's not going to happen. It was happening before. I I know for a fact it was happening before when I was coaching in San Francisco. Now it's just going to be the wild, wild west. And so it's a crazy thing. I'm all for player movement. I'm all for player freedom. I want players to get what they think they deserve. But our game is going to change. And so that's a scary thing for me. Who's kind of a basketball purist. I played for Roy Williams. You know what I mean? I played for Matt Doherty. You know what I mean? We're kind of basketball purists. And so the game is something's going to be lost and you're not going to have that connection. Like, and when you think about Duke, you think about Christian Laettner in four years. When you think about Wake Forest, you think about Tim Duncan in four years. When you think about Kansas, you think about Danny Manning in four years, you're, you're not going to see that nearly as much now and even worse than maybe it was even two, three years ago. So that to me is kind of sad.
0: Yeah, it's it's crazy. I'm not going to call out the, the, the previous guest that was on our show, but it was a college basketball coach that I was talking to the other day and talking about recruiting and how it's just it, that coaches are now going to recruit the portal first. And then maybe, and you talk about junior college, and then maybe high school seniors. And I'm thinking like, holy crap, we, I'm at Ridgeview High School in Columbia, South Carolina. We have a top 30 kid that's a sophomore right now. And, and that's great that we get all this attention. But now he's getting probably pushed down the line a little bit because these college coaches are going to be looking at the portal first. Because, And I get it. It's, it's, why, why not? If you have a guy that's been proven at the Division one level or whatever level, why not look there first? It's, it's fascinating to me.
2: And for selfish reasons, I have a high school senior. I have a guy that's going to be a high school senior that I think is a pretty good darn player, but I know they are. They're going to look transfers because you're right. Like, If you get a guy that's going to you know, average 10 to 20 points and he's going to transfer your place for one year, you know what you're getting in terms of being able and ready to play at that level. So uh, also as a parent now, <laughs> it affects me. You know what I mean? So it's, it's really a a crazy time. It is truly the wild, wild West. Uh, I'm not, it's not something I'm really excited about when it comes to college basketball.
1: Well, coach uh, part of the reason we wound up getting connected with you was I had said to Matt Doherty, he had mentioned your name. And I said, I believe he was the first Asian American to play in the NBA. And that's what sparked the phone call. And um you had said there there was somebody else. Uh, I did a little research. It was uh, it was actually this is crazy. When I did this research, Watura Musaka was actually the first non-white person to play in the NBA in 1947-48 yes. for the New York Knicks. Um, as far as I can tell, when you were drafted, you were the highest ever uh, Asian-American draft pick at the time. Yeah, uh, first Asian-American to play in the Final Four. I know you've done some interviews talking about your Japanese-American heritage. What does that mean to you? And, and obviously, in the, in the year we've had here, being an Asian-American and, and the pride in that and that you've taken that and some of the barriers that maybe you have broken down.
2: Well, I think the first thing, if my eyes were a little bit, you know, not so wide, I might have had more endorsement deals. Like, it really cost me a lot of money that I don't look that japanese i'm you know i am full on Hapa, which is considered half um it's something i take great pride in all of my best friends to this day that i hang out i grew up in the japanese uh, american basketball leagues from uh, which i started in fourth grade from fourth grade on i was playing japanese american basketball with all of my best friends uh that entire time so when i got drafted it was a, it was a big deal for me it was something my mom was truly proud of i think that you know, when we went back to Japan, I did some camps back in Japan. Uh, hopefully, you know, I I inspired some people because, you know, there's a lot of uh, great, you know, Asian American players. Jeremy Lin now has had a great career. We saw Roy Hashimura, you know, he is, he is from the motherland, I'd mm-hmm. like to say. And, and uh, I think he probably broke my streak of being the highest draft pick, but that's something he, of he great did. pride. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm very proud of being a Japanese American basketball player. I'm, I'm very proud that not only did I do it in the NBA, I did it in a Final Four, and I was a coach, a Division One head coach as well. That's something I'm really proud of, not just for me, but for my friends, for my mother. Uh, she's really proud of that. She she won't say more than five words to me when I call her. I know that's something she's proud of. You know what I mean? So
1: it's something that's very very cool. That I am uh, really uh, I'm, I'm really proud of. Well, coach, I don't mean to go a little off topic on mothers here, but. If you want a mom to talk to you on the phone, you can take Brian's mom's number. She'll talk okay. to you for hours.
0: We'll even it out. On
1: the phone. <laughs> okay. I and got he you. can call your I'm mom right. and have five five-word conversation.
0: There you go. <laughs> she, she will certainly even it out. Okay. So, Coach – I had the great fortune of going to Japan in 2019. It's the last international trip that I was able to take before all of the pandemic and everything. And hopefully Bill, we'll be able to travel internationally here sometime soon. Again, I absolutely fell in love. I was in there. I was there for 11 days, I believe. And just the people and just, I mean, obviously the food, I mean, well, this is an audio podcast, thankfully. So folks can't see how my size, but just, absolute I just it felt like it was just the most calm peaceful and yet busy place I was in Tokyo went to Kyoto went down south a little bit but tell our listeners and, and tell me why I need to go back to Japan and just spend more time there what makes Japan so special
2: well number one if you get a chance to go back there and coach like the the whole arrangement of a game you, you walk into a gym and the gym is a sacred place like you go in there with regular shoes you go in there, you take your shoes off, you put slippers on, you go to your locker room, and then you put on your basketball shoes, right? Like, that's kind of cool. Like, the gym is a sacred place in Japan. Uh, you When you get introduced in a game, and especially an international game, because I played there in international games as a high school player, they introduce each player, and each player goes out there and they shoot their shot. It's kind of like the old Hoosiers thing. Like, you know, as you introduce a team for your first pep rally, they shoot their shot. You know, I, I got to dunk one. Some guy would shoot a three. Some guy would shoot a fancy layup. It, the, the whole like production of a of a game in Japan against an you know international team is just really really cool. Uh The food is obviously great. The history is great. Like I when I went back, I've always gone back with my mother. So that's always a special thing to me because she can translate. I understand what urusai bakatare means that means shut up stupid okay but she can really translate a lot of things to me and help me understand what people are saying and just a great great history in japan for me it's it's always something special i've talked my wife has actually talked about hey we need to take the kids back and i've got blonde haired you know blue eyed kids (laughs) but like a chance to go back there and experience that and experience that culture like the bullet i got to go on the bullet train And if the bullet train is supposed to show up at 12.05, guess what time it shows up at? It shows up at 12.05, like on the dot. Like their organization in Japan, it's amazing. And to get the chance to experience that and understand where my mother came from was really something unique and special for me.
0: It's so funny. I'm glad you brought that up. I I remember, like I said, 11 days and standing at uh, a, a crosswalk and whether the light is green it doesn't matter Or if there's no cars coming anything like that japanese folks they are going to wait until that walk signal is white and you walk across and then if there's a a moving escalator in an airport everybody always stands to the right and they walk to the left they they follow the rules and i'm like i'm in heaven i absolutely and i remember flying back into detroit and everything was just just like it is in America and I said well back back in America that was that was a nice 11 day respite uh but again I did, the people were so funny I just I want to tell a quick story blous I know you got to get to the greatest game but the first restaurant I walk into in Tokyo I, I love getting off the beaten path they spoke no English no English menus and I walk in and the gentleman that I ran the place on the place I don't know says something to me in Japanese and I was just stone faced stunned like I don't know and he goes uh uh, chicken, uh, egg, uh, noodle. And I go, yes. And he they yelled something back to the cooks and brought out the most amazing food. And I said, I'm hooked. I, I want to come back here <laughs> as often as I can. So love me some Japan. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome.
1: They call that the Rosefield now in Tokyo, chicken, that's egg, right. and noodle. It's, <laughs> that's it's right. called the Brian Rosefield now. So coach, why don't you take us through uh, one or two of your greatest games? We'd especially like to hear some from the coaching end. Obviously we know you had some great games as a player at Kansas, But uh, take us through a couple of those games that really stand out in your memory.
2: Well, coaching, it's pretty easy. Um, We we played Gonzaga three years in a row and and beat them. And when when you're playing against Gonzaga, you're playing against Elias Harris, who played in the NBA, Rob Sacker, who played in the NBA, Kelly Olnick, who was still playing in the NBA. We never beat Kelly, but, you know – At our place, we would have some great, great battles against Gonzaga. And that's something I was always – we had great players. Angelo Calario, who's playing for Maccabee Tel Aviv. Rashad Green, who's Danny Green's little brother. He actually – this kid's an amazing kid. He actually fractured his wrist uh, the game before his last game and played through it, right? Like that's how tough this kid was. You know, Cody Doolin. Cole Dickerson was a young player, Michael Dickerson's little brother. Okay. But, you know, beating Gonzaga at home. And the, the best memory is in the third year, the first year, we had a, a floor storming and our players were in it. The second year we had, we beat them again. There was a floor like storm. Some of our players went in it. Right. And then the third year we had the floor, the students charged the floor again and none of our players did it. They all walked and congratulated Gonzaga. And that was to me a really proud thing because our guys felt like, no, we're supposed to beat these guys that are going to be playing in the NBA, that are going to be playing in the NCAA tournament. Like we expect to beat these guys. So that for me as a coach was always a really good thing. And then beating St. Mary's the year we beat St. Mary's because those were the two teams. Like I was really proud of some of the teams we had at USF. We, We won 20 games twice, which hadn't been done in over 30 years. Uh, we went to 3 postseason tournaments, but those two teams are always the two teams, you know, in the West Coast Conference. And so for us to finish second twice and, and get over that hump uh, were always special things for me, but obviously beating Gonzaga, beating St. Mary's and St. Mary's was always tough. Randy does a great job. We only yeah. beat them once in my eight years, you know, Patty Mills, Matthew Della Vadova, you know, Omar Sam but, but, uh, Uh, beating Gonzaga, and then the third year when we beat him and we expected to beat them. That, to me, was a very cool moment as a coach.
1: I'm going to divert off the games with Gonzaga for a second. I should have asked this in our normal Q&A segment. Uh, When you get the job at San Francisco, do they have Bill Russell come in the office just to intimidate the hell out of you? like?
2: It's really, it's, it's really strange. Bill, Bill has not been on campus except for funerals of former players.
1: Wow.
2: Um, yeah. It's, it's a really tough deal. Like Bill Cartwright is back. I think he's actually working at USF, but, but coach uh, Bill Russell, the, you know, the greatest winner in team sports of all time. Like he's the greatest winner. Like I don't, he, you know, I've reached out to him when I was at USF would have not a whole lot to do at usf really sad and i don't know all the reasons why but uh, you know he always talks about the celtics he doesn't talk a lot about usf it's interesting but it was a tough job like when i walked in they were they decided to paint the walls of my office so all the furniture was pushed in the middle of the room and i'm like i gotta get players i gotta recruit you know and and uh so it was interesting I, i remember Walking through the front, we left Florida Atlantic University and my my one of my younger sons said, is this really a better job than than Florida Atlantic? Like he was like, this place isn't, you know, all that magical, but it was on game nights. It was a special place uh, beating Gonzaga, beating St. Mary's, beating St. John's when Coach Lavin was there, Those, beating Colorado with Tad Boyle, who's a great coach uh, at home. Um, you know, seeing former great former players that did come back and really supported and remembered the glory days, because back in the '80s, the early '80s, '70s, that was the program. That and UCLA, those were the two programs that really dominated the West Coast. Uh, you know, when it talks about basketball in the United States, so that to me was really exciting to go there. But but no, Bill Russell didn't come and intimidate. I never had a conversation with Coach Russell, and I reached out to people to get to. Mr. Russell, and it never happened. But they wow. did say this, and it was really strange for me. They're like, hey, we don't care if you not you don't win a game a year. Beat Santa Clara. You got to beat Santa. I was like, hold on, hold on. No, no, no. We want to win championships. We want to, you know, and, and that's kind of how it changed a little bit at San Francisco for me. But, but we had a great time. My family loved the city. Uh, we really enjoyed it. I still talk to a lot of our players that played, you know, for me, and I was lucky enough to coach. But it was, a, it was a hard eight years, to say the least, when I was at San Francisco to try to get that thing to a, to a level that we thought we could compete at.
1: Well, Coach, uh, this happens when guest comes on and they say something. It sparks a trivia question in my mind. And I ask Brian, and he and always gets it wrong. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what so, we So Coach Walters mentioned Santa Clara University. What former NBA MVP, and I, I don't know if he's in the Hall of Fame yet, but he will be in the Hall of Fame, went to Santa Clara. Brian, um,
0: that's going to be Steve Nash. Oh, yeah, I one. mean, Rex, I mean, let's just be honest. You just witnessed history. Uh, I think it had 115 favorite. episodes. Uh, that might be my first uh, correct answer. But that was well, a funny
2: Give me this one. What NBA champion, NBA world champion, also graduated from Santa Clara? Uh-oh.
1: Coach Walter stumped me. Graduate. Who
0: else went to while he's thinking, again, as we mentioned in the pre-show chatter, this is Chris de Blasio who <laughs> ran the Jeopardy category of Russian Czars, and he's about to miss a basketball question. But go for I it, Chris I Blasio.
1: don't know. I
2: don't know. I'll give you a hint. He played for the Los Angeles Lakers,
1: Oh. and he,
2: and he had funny glasses that he wore every night. Kurt Rambis? Did he yeah, go to San Yeah, he, he, that was the big sales pitch when they recruited me. Kurt Rambis uh, made it to the NBA, won a world championship, and obviously Steve took it to another level.
1: But at at this point, Steve doesn't have any of the championship rings, and maybe he'll get one this year. That's true. Brian, I'll I'll stump you with a follow-up question on that. Who did Steve Nash beat in the NCAA tournament as a 15 seed?
0: Ooh, that one I have no idea.
2: I I know.
1: Coach Walters.
2: Arizona I,
1: Arizona I, yeah yep. yeah I, I was
2: I was actually at Bryce Drew's house. we were recruiting a kid, I want to say his name was James Lofton, and he went to Tennessee and he was a heck of a player, oh yeah, and we were watching that game uh, at Bryce's house, recruiting James Lofton, who ended up going to Tennessee. <laughs>
0: He could flat out street, uh, just just stroke it. So we worked in South Carolina together, coach, and we watched him just bury threes for a couple of years. Third <laughs> guys and all all over the SEC, Co- coach. You, you mentioned good jobs versus challenging jobs, and I'm going to name drop on you. I've gotten the chance to go uh, get get to know Corey Schmidt a little bit. That was on staff with you at Wake Forest. Met him at uh, a Final Four in Indianapolis. Uh, we'll we'll tell that story off there. How we met. It's just a great. Great guy. And really, honestly, and I'll tell him this to his face, too, has a future in the game. He's going to keep climbing the ladder. Just a great guy. So if you were talking to guys like Corey or just anybody just trying to break into college basketball, how would you differentiate? Hey, yeah, you need to get a job versus uh, maybe don't take a job there. How do you how do you tell a guy what job to take and, and give that advice to him?
2: Well, I think the first thing I talked to Corey today, actually, we actually talked today. Corey's the best.
0: He is. And
2: and it's funny when we were let go at Wake Forest, I said, You got to coach. Like, I don't care what level, I don't care if it's Juco, Division II, NEIA, like, you're a coach. You need to coach and and get away from the administrative stuff because he's great at that, but he's a coach. And and someone's going to be really smart and make a great, smart decision and bring him onto their staff. There's no doubt in my mind. If I got a job again, at some point, he would be a guy that I'm going to call and try to talk him into. I'm the worst recruiter. I tell him all the bad parts about a job now hard it's going to be and see if they really want it. And he's the guy that would accept that challenge. But, you know, I think the biggest thing with a job is can you really compete and be in the top three in your league? I think that's, that's the first thing. And, and so what it takes for that is does your president does your administration and does your athletic director have that as a goal? And do they understand what it takes to get there? Right. Like like I talked about Gonzaga, like they are so far ahead of really everybody in the West Coast Conference. They're going to be in the top three on a bad year and they, they've always been the top one right? BYU is close, but they've, they've gone back and forth. And St. Mary's, I think they have a great administration in AD, and Randy does a phenomenal job. So you got to have, if you're going to be an assistant coach, you want to look at those things. Does the president have that vision? Does the athletic director have that vision? And do you, are you going to work for a man that understands what it takes in his league to truly compete for a top three spot in that league? Uh, Because if you're in the top three, that means you got a chance to win your league, you got a chance to go to the NCAA tournament, and then your life becomes a lot better, a lot quicker. I didn't understand that quite well enough when when I went to San Francisco. Uh, I've taken some bad, hard, not bad jobs, hard jobs, you know, and and we've actually got to the top three, but I wasn't able to sustain it. But I think those are things you really got to look at. Do you have a man that you're going to work for, that is about the right things, right, but also understands how to take that group and get them to a higher level. Like Randy, uh, Randy does a great, Randy Benton does a great job of that at St. Mary's. They, they don't have the most talent, but he gets them to a higher level. Obviously Mark's done a phenomenal job, but he's also done a phenomenal job in recruiting. So, uh, and it's not always about the league. It's, it's really not. It's about, can, you know, Belmont, where, where Corey came from, you know, they're a team that every year they've got a chance to win their league. They've got great coaching. They've got great infrastructure. They got a great, like, unified force. Like I said, you know, president, AD, administration, coach. They're all really joined at the hip and really want to get there. Because when you do that, then you have a chance. (laughs) Then you have a chance to really succeed. Uh, and, And that's obviously as a young coach like Corey or any young guy, that gives you a chance for upward mobility, right? And you're learning the right things and what it's supposed to look like. Like Roy Williams, uh, you know, I didn't listen good enough. Like he stayed at Carolina forever. But then when Kansas finally gave him a shot, that's a job that you're going to be in the top three, you know, and have a chance to truly compete for league championships and even national championships. And so he was really smart to be patient and work his tail off while he was patient. And then when he got his opportunity, he made the most of
0: it there's so much of that, that I love and, and I go back to episode 34 coach we reference this coach a lot coach Rick Duckett who's at Charleston Southern University now and just what you're talking about just having those three folks at the top having the same vision and being able to have a, just that that bought-in mentality and not choosing a job where coach Duckett would say you can make your mouth say anything where the president or AD is saying oh yeah we're gonna do this we're gonna do that no but just having that that proof in the pudding is to be able to be sure that they really care about like you say, doing it the right way doing Doing it and doing it well, I, I love that so much. We could snip at that and uh, help a lot of a lot of young coaches that are coming up in the business with that one. So sorry, Chris, I had to jump in on that one real quick.
1: coach, we always like to ask this as our final question. Uh, if I asked some of the guys who played for you at uh, Florida Atlantic, San Francisco, now some of the guys with the Pelicans, and I said, "What's the one thing Coach Walters says over and over again? What would that be?" <laughs>
0: Wow.
2: Um, they would hear a lot of, well, especially now, get
0: back. <laughs> get
2: back. Like transition defense is a is a big, big thing. And they'd probably hear it at Wake Forest too when I was there. Uh, later in my career at San Francisco, transition turned into a big, big thing. Like I just, I just, I believe it to, to you know, my dying day. Like you've got to be great in transition defense. You've got to make teams play against a set defense as much as possible so when the shot goes up you get it guys yeah your fours and fives or if you've got a great like Rashad Green was a great get it guy like he would get one or two offensive rebounds for us a game yeah go ahead and go get it right um but your get back guys guys that have no chance of getting it like no chance get back set our defense let's sprint let's talk right let's stop the ball let's get matched up and, and so another easy way of saying it is number one protect the rim stop the ball right build a wall and then get to your matchups like it, it's a big thing and it gives you a chance right to be successful so it like every time we're doing dummy offense the shot goes up instantly I'm yelling get back get back sprint back it's a big big thing so they would probably remember that uh, especially as an assistant coach I just thought that that was so important I know it's really important I work for one of the best in Stan Van Gundy
1: it is oh god it's so true I hate the guys that stand in no man's land (laughs) you know it's it's one or the other it's like yeah it's like either
2: yeah it's either get it or get back and I would tell my get it guys like hey if you don't get it you got to get ahead of the ball ahead of your matchups You got to be protecting the paint, right? Protecting the rim, the paint, and then build out and get to your matchup. Um, It just gives you a chance to be successful. It really does. And and so that's – and that's something you can always control as a coach. Like I watched literally my son's game, uh, and they they played up this year, uh, this last tournament, and transition defense killed them. And I was quiet. I was a good parent. It's really (laughs) hard for me to be a good parent, but I was really quiet, and I'm just thinking – why in the heck aren't they just sprinting back? <laughs> like, stop the layup, stop the insanity, yeah. you know, and let's set our defense so they have to play against a set defense.
1: All right, I'm going to double down on this. Uh, what's one thing you remember that Coach Williams said over and over again? And you have to do it in your best Coach Williams voice. Oh, gosh.
2: <laughs> it, it probably was. <laughs> okay. It probably was something to the fact of Rex, get on the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, get get on the line meant I did something wrong and I have to start running twenty two. <laughs> so, but I got especially my first year, I got a lot of trouble like. It's I was talking to my AAU coach and I was talking about like my son, like you got to be more aggressive. Like I was in a meeting with Coach Williams one time, and I'll never forget this. And he's like, Rex, I was on, you know, sitting out, so I'm on the second team. We're playing against the blue squad, which is the top five. And coach is like, hey, Rex, you got you got to share the ball more. You know, you, you got to make sure you move it. Don't, you know, don't always, you know. And I said, Coach, if we're gonna lose, I'm going down shooting. <laughs> <laughs> And he just, that's the one time the coach was kind of speechless for a half second. Like, what did this kid just say to me? And I was like, and I was just thinking about, Hey, if I, if we're going to lose, like I'm the best shooter on the floor, I'm going to shoot the basketball, but I got myself in a lot of trouble just like that. Right. Where I, you know, I didn't get to the, 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 um, long rebounder spot. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't stop an easy change of sides, second loss of ball, which is your second turnover get on the line, you know, we, we run our half quarterback, we'd run our down and back. And and so a lot of times, especially my first year, I was like a mess defensively. I was always getting my team in trouble. We were always running down and backs because of me. So Rex, get on the line, you know, red team, get on the line.
0: Uh, I, I love it. Coach, I, I heard you say something that I, I probably won't forget on a, on a podcast I was listening to prepping for this show. You you told the uh, the host of that show, you said, podcasts are easy when you have a good guest. And uh, you, you've you been a great guest for us here in this recording. This has been awesome. We just we can't thank you enough for taking some time out, t- talking some hoops with us. It's been a lot of fun. We really appreciate it.
2: Well, thank you for having me, guys. Best of luck with the pod. I look forward to, to following you guys now that I know where you're at.
0: There you go. Well, we might have to just have a a Coach Doherty and Coach Walters uh, reunion, maybe get even uh, Corey Schmidt. I I, I was texting with Corey today, so we're going to get him on the show as well. So we'll let you know when we drop that one as well. But uh, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up for my co-host, Chris de Blasio. I am Brian Rosefield, and thank you for listening to this episode of The Greatest Games.